This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I don't believe in objectivity as something that happens in journalism. I think that we always have some kind of subjectivity. And so I wanted to always let readers know who I'm referencing and if I have a relationship to them. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to reject the idea that that in any way denigrates the quality of the work. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's always awesome to talk to you. But I think I recognize the dulcet tones we heard at the top of the show. Who do they belong to? Yes, we heard the dulcet tones of journalist, professor, theorist, and all-around mensch, Stephen Thrasher. Ah, yes. I thought it was him. And I should note here that Stephen is someone I've known and liked very much for several years. We actually met in 2014 at the White House. Oh, can you hear that place being dropped? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm amazing. Um, yeah, although I have to admit it was a building tour that happened during a convening of queer journalists. We weren't there to meet officials or interview anyone. So... You know, I went to the White House once in high school to be part of a group of carol singers. They had all these high school choruses singing carols in different rooms of the White House because they do, you know, Christmas tours and stuff like that. Yeah, but was Stephen Thrasher there with you? I don't think so. so, He was not. So you have the better story. You have the better story. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. (laughs) Um, Stephen, also one of the all-time great users of Twitter. All value, no bullshit, just a superstar on Twitter. But why did you want to speak with him for working? Well, Stephen is the author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. And mm. um, I actually first got to know Stephen a little bit when uh, The World Only Spins Forward came out. Uh-huh. We were on a panel together and we sort of became correspondents during that. And, you know, he's one of the people who's really connecting the dots between the AIDS crisis and the other kinds of pandemic crises that we face Mm -hmm. today in a really powerful way. There's kind of a a circle of people who are doing that. Um, Peter Staley, Greg Gonzalez, Sarah Shulman, uh, you know, who are all in ACT UP together, people like that. But Stephen's book, you know, The Viral Underclass, it really weaves a lot of disparate things going on in America into this concept of the viral underclass in a really powerful way. I am absolutely sure of that. Uh, And I am very excited to hear this interview. But I believe that you have an extra segment that is exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Well, I asked Stephen about his career journey. You know, he started out studying screenwriting and he's now a journalist, author, teacher, activist, you know, focusing on science and medicine and inequality. So how did he get here from there? You know, what yeah, what, yeah. what brings him from one place to another? And it's a really fascinating story, I think. Yeah, I bet. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that at the end of the episode. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Stephen Thrasher. Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm working to talk about your process. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to be here with you, Isaac. So your new book is The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. For our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't, you know, picked it up at their local indie bookstore and read the back (laughs) of it to get a sense of it, can you just describe the book and its project? Uh, Certainly. So The Viral Underclass is a book that, in a way, I started writing about eight years ago, writing about the criminalization of HIV and AIDS, um, how it affected a young man named Michael Johnson. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to turn this into a book after having reported on it for six years and written my dissertation uh, based on it when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And so what I ended up doing was writing about the ways that um, certain people become very affected by very different viruses. I started seeing that people who were being affected with COVID-19 was overlapping a lot with people who were affected by HIV and AIDS. And it struck me as very strange because they were very, very different viruses that 
came into contact with people in different ways, but they're affecting the same kinds of populations. And so the book is a way that I write about 12 different social vectors that explain why these different kinds of viruses are affecting the same populations. And the vectors are capitalism, ableism, racism, different kinds of isms that uh, socially affect people but create very different material results. And I tell it through the stories of different people with each vector. Mm. And, and was there like a chunk of the, I mean, I know that, that there was a dissertation that existed. Uh, was there a chunk of the book that kind of existed and then you had to throw it out or rejigger it when the COVID-19 pandemic hit or or like what did it look like at that point? When COVID was starting to hit, I had traveled to uh, Greece while I was writing my dissertation uh, on, a, on a fellowship and was just going hopefully to get away from the United States for a little while while I was working on these things and not think about things like police violence. When a young man was kicked to death by a mob by eight people, four of them were police, and it turned out that he was one of the most prominent HIV activists in the country. Oh, wow. And so I had started, his name was Zach Kostopoulos, and so I had returned to try to write uh, research more about him. Um, I didn't know if that was going to be a standalone project or what exactly was going to happen with that. And I also was trying to figure out if my project about Michael Johnson was going to become a standalone project about his story or if it was going to be something about the history of AIDS. And I was in Athens when the first uh, case of COVID was diagnosed there, and then I returned to the United States, and then, of course, COVID took over the whole world. And so I didn't know. I, I'd, I'd been working with an agent. I was trying to write a book project. I didn't know if I was going to lose my job as a professor. I didn't know if people would buy books. Um, I don't know if, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen. Is the economy going to collapse or all businesses going to go out of business? My agent, Tanya McKinnon, very smartly said, I think people are going to watch everything they can watch on Netflix, and then they're going to run out of things to watch on Netflix, and they're going to start reading books and buying more books. And that's exactly what happened. Book sales went up. Yeah, it turns out there is not an unlimited amount of things on Netflix. You think there are, yeah. but but you can reach the end of Netflix eventually. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, and you can run out of books that you've already read. So, right. you know, people, are, people kept writing and reading books. And so Tanya actually asked to look at my dissertation, which had a narrative arc to it, but also had very technical parts. And the last chapter was called The Viral Underclass. And that was kind of how I'd ended the book after I'd, I'd written about lots of theoretical things and, and the story of this young man who'd been arrested. I wrote about how I saw activists talking about um, if they reformed HIV laws and left some of them on the books in ways that some people get prosecuted for them and others wouldn't, that was going to create a kind of viral underclass. And I looked more into that phrase and the origins of it. And Tanya and I talked about it and decided that what I should do is use that as an analytic to look at past pandemics, particularly HIV and AIDS, but also to some degree hepatitis and tuberculosis and the 1918 flu uh, pandemic, um, and to use that as an analytic, as a way to think about how pandemics happened, and to use that as a way to explore what we didn't know was going to happen. You know, in March 2020, we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. Right. So that was kind of how it, it began. And and. Another move from it was I think the dissertation and my previous reporting on this had really focused on the ways that HIV criminalization showed a kind of systemic racism and illustrated a kind of racism. And in this project, I started seeing how the same dynamics, of course, apply to racism, and I write about that a lot. But I also saw in Greece with the killing of this uh, HIV-positive Greek person that that was happening outside the context of U.S. race relations. It was happening to white people in Europe, and I saw ways that it was happening in Asia. And I saw how similar dynamics were happening around disability um, here in the United States and around the world. And so that became kind of the move to go from a project that was really about race and HIV to sort of say this illustrates a set of dynamics that can explain how marginalization happens and viruses kind of give us the key to understanding how that happens. Mm, wow. You know, one thing I love about the book is how generous you are with sharing credit for things. You know, if you get an idea from somewhere, you're not trying to claim it. So, for example, the term the viral underclass, you didn't coin it. You're adapting it and expanding it and everything like that. And you're very open about that. You talk about um, Sarah Shulman and, and, you know, the way that she sort of opened your eyes to how viruses affect the world. The history of the world is the history of viruses, right? And um, you mentioned two books that are big influences on the viral underclass. One is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and the other is The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which, you know, both of which were books that, particularly The Shock Doctrine, I just remember when that came out, just blew my mind. Um, were there other books you were thinking of as models or, you know, when you're trying to solve the problem of how to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish in a book for a general audience? audience or whatever that you were looking to for inspiration? And, and what did you pull from them? Well, yeah, certainly uh, New Jim Crow opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And one of the things I was 
riffing on from her book is the way that she also writes about she did not come up with the the term new jim crow it was something that she heard in community and and she's kind of making a new legal theory or or way for or legal analytic for people to understand these dynamics in society and so that really appealed to me and i wanted to similarly credit for a bunch of reasons how i had learned this term from sean strube how i'd first encountered here an activist using it in a different way and how i was sort of building on it in a third way. And it was really important to me to credit people for a couple of reasons. I feel like when writing for print magazines um, and newspapers, editors are often trying to get rid of that. It is an inline credit. You can usually hyperlink, but there have been, you know, we've seen a couple of them this year, uh, disasters where book authors have credited people in their footnotes or even in line, and then the adaptation ends up taking the credit out and it looks bad for something the author tried to do. And I thought also this, this is deals a bit with um, frustration to have with with journalism. I don't believe in objectivity as something that happens in journalism. I think that we always have some kind of subjectivity. And so I wanted to always let readers know who I'm referencing and if I have a relationship to them. Mm-hmm. Um, not to take credit for the idea, but also to say, like, this is a person I'm in relationship with. And that's because I practice relational journalism. I try to have relationships with sources. I often have relationships with communities of readers that I'm writing about over time. That's certainly been true over the 10, 12 years I've been writing about um, HIV. And they also, like, I think the reader has a right to know that. Um, The shock doctrine and Naomi Klein, I was so touched that she agreed to blurb my book, was one of the books that really opened my eyes to kind of how the world works. And I think that Klein also does this really beautiful work that is completely original and brilliant, but not written in academic prose and is very widely accessible while also being very intellectually rigorous. Bell Hooks was a huge influence to me as well. Um, When I first started thinking about going into an an academic track, it was largely because I had read the work of Bell Hooks. Mm. And I remember feeling like I was coming home, like coming to an intellectual home when I started reading what she wrote. Um, The book Fast Food Nation also had a huge influence on me. I think it came out in 1999 or 2000. And Eric Schlesser, wrote this book about how fast food operates in the U.S. and really used that as a prism to understand labor, economics, environment, uh, political, uh, you know, uh, electoral politics, race politics, um, very much through this lens of thinking about fast food. And so, and that was one of the reasons why I, I ended up doing a PhD in American studies, even though his book is not a is not an academic book either, but I found out the field of American studies often will do this thing where you're sort of looking at one thing in the U.S. and understanding the dynamics of the U.S. through it. And I really admired the way he did that in that book. It had a big influence on me. And so in some ways, I thought about thinking of viruses um, the way that he had thought about fast food as a way to understand lots of things about the United States. But probably the person who influenced me the most, you already said, was Sarah Shulman, who um, I first encountered through activism about Palestine when she was involved at the LGBT Center and trying to make sure that a, a Palestine-supporting group did not get thrown out of the center. Um, and her book, Gentrification of the Mind. Great and, book. Yeah, really fantastic. Uh, Conflict is not abuse. I think the, these are books that are kind of our modern philosophy that help guide a, guide a lot of people trying to do ethical work uh, in, in politics and in uh, community building. And then also, which came out not too long before mine, Let the Record Show, which is a, a history of ACT UP New York. Um, and the couple things that I learned from Sarah the most were Um, that the story of viruses is the story of the United States. I don't think you can really understand U.S. history without understanding AIDS history. Mm -hmm. And also the way that we work in groups and we work in conflict, that there's always conflict that's happening in in political growth and and political advancement and ways to take care of community, that we very much have a relationship to each other and a responsibility to one another. Um, And and Sarah's written about how she learned that through AIDS organizing and AIDS work, and, and I very much learned that from her. You know, an, another thing I love about the book is I, I feel like it really combines the different sides of you as a person and, and your life journey. And we, while we're speaking relationally, you know, you and I are friends. You know, we've we've oh, this is only the second time I think we've been in a room together. Weirdly enough, the other was at <laughs> AWP. But you know, we we are on Twitter a lot and correspond and things like that. But and so I really felt like it's it's you. You know, there's like the journalist side of you, the social scientist side of you, the the memoirist side of you. And I was just wondering about how you make space for those different sides of yourself on the page and when you're deciding kind of which hat to wear. Or maybe you just don't distinguish between those things. I don't know. I've had times in my life where I'm very much distinguishing between sort of 
an activist sense or a journalist sense. Mm -hmm. And the way I'll often explain to my students about that is I wrote a, a story many years ago for the Times about um, bad things that were happening in a homeless shelter run by LGBT people for LGBT kids. And I felt very much it was my responsibility as a journalist to write about that once I found out about it, both because my allegiance in that situation is most to the kids. They're the most vulnerable in the situation. But also as a journalist, it's um, to write about things that are unjust and try to find more justice for people. And some activists might not want to do that so much. Some might, um, but some might want to say, let's take care of it out of, you know, yeah. not in the press. But as a journalist, I'm like, that's one of the distinctions between an activist and a journalist there. We, we both care about the community, but sometimes I step out and write about it more critically. Um, in writing this book, I was trying to find less distinction between the different parts of myself. And I feel like professionally, intellectually, through therapy, <laughs> um, you know, I try not to have a sense of bifurcation between the different parts of myself. And a huge influence, actually, I should have said this when you asked me about books, was um, a book called The View from Somewhere by Lewis Raven Wallace, who is a trans uh, journalist. And, and we had met in his moment of crisis, uh, a person put us in touch with each other. Lewis was the only out radio reporter in the country in 2016 um, when Trump was elected and, be and was inaugurated. And was working for the radio show Marketplace. And Marketplace had told their staffers, you must blog. And um, Lewis had started a blog, a medium that fewer than 20 people had read. Um, but wrote this post saying, objectivity is dead. And he was okay with it. And it wasn't actually a screaming call for, for being a polemicist. But it was acknowledging that as a trans radio reporter, when he would get sent to North Carolina he would have to make a decision about what bathroom to use. And that's, you know, that puts you in a political position. But also cis people going in that situation are making a decision to, you know, participate in this sort of mm -hmm. segregated situation. And that is, if we reflect on that critically, that actually makes our work much stronger. And then Lewis got fired immediately from marketplaces, never worked in public media again. Wow. And so my conversations with him and some of the work we've done together really have informed the ways that I want to think about how we can be critically reflective, but bring our whole selves into whatever we do, and that that makes our work richer. Um, and so I wanted to write this book. I, the mix ended up being a different mix than I thought when it began, but I wanted it to be some memoir, some kind of social science research, and journalism reporting uh, as a way to think about viruses and explicitly uh, historically, but also to write about the present situation that was happening with the coronavirus pandemic. And I wanted to bring all of those parts of myself together. And I wanted to do so to, like as I was saying earlier, both let the audience know who I was talking about, um, but to acknowledge that if I have as many queer people have, you know, um, if I have a relationship with people I'm writing about, that that's, you know, okay, as long as you're talking about it. Viruses happen in very intimate scales of our lives. So much of the, the ways I've benefited from the science and the politics and the culture of uh, queer culture in the 80s and the 90s comes from queer activists and gay activists and ACT UP and news publications and government who like all knew each other and were working very diligently and ethically together to try to stop AIDS from killing people. And right. that and that involved activists, artists, journalists, scientists, you know, working together. Sometimes, you know, people had, had lots of relationships with each other, losing people they loved. And I wanted to reject the idea that that in any way denigrates the quality of the work. Um, sometimes it's because people are explicitly affected by something that they end up spending the most time in the lab or the <laughs> most time on the hill or as journalists trying to solve what's happening. Uh, and I wanted to share some about myself. I ended up sharing more than I had planned um, <laughs> in ways that do make me uncomfortable at times. But I feel like if I'm asking particularly someone like Michael Johnson, who was incarcerated for most of the time that I reported about him, if I'm asking people to share about the intimate parts of their lives, then I feel like I should be willing to do so as well. Um, but also what I kind of hoped was, particularly with COVID, if I shared about the intimate ways and difficult and vulnerable ways that um, I was affected by the pandemic, that I hope that that would give people an ability to reflect on their own experiences, knowing that, you know, a million people died here in the United States mm -hmm. alone. And I think so much news media, even more so after the book's been published, is just relentlessly trying to get us to move on, move on, yeah. move on. And so I wanted to be vulnerable about my own processes of mourning and loss in ways that I hoped would give readers some space and ability to be vulnerable within themselves and to experience their grief and loss.
We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Stephen Thrasher. Listeners, we want to hear from you every other Thursday on Working Overtime. We answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, and we hope you are, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Stephen Thrasher. You just mentioned uh, sharing a lot about yourself sometimes, some things that make you <laughs> uncomfortable. You know, I you brilliantly teed up my next question, which had to do with, you know, you being present, the first person pronoun being present on the page. You know, I, I know like when I was writing The Method, it was like I really spent a long time wrestling with where am I in this book, you know? And eventually where I came out was I'm going to be in the introduction and afterward. And then there's going to be enough of a sense of style in the book that you know, like, a subjective human being is writing and telling you this story. But because the story, most of the story takes place before I was even born, and I'm not doing that many first, but you know, it just, I needed to get out of the way of it for the most part. Whereas you really did um, the opposite. You're, you know, you're very present on the page. You're sharing stuff about your own health problems and, and experiences in the American healthcare industry and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, yes. About my balls. About your balls. Yes. Well, okay. Yes. Yes. You're sharing. Yes. You're talking about your balls. I was wondering, and maybe that was one of the parts that you were uncomfortable with. Um Let's talk a little bit about the process of, of writing stuff about yourself that you still might feel uncomfortable with having out there in the world, you know, even now the book's been out for several months. I've done a thing that multiple editors who who are good have noted with me. You know, you know something when multiple editors critique something that it's probably you and not just the editor. Right. And so one of them is like, I'll often have some impetus about something that I want to write about, but it feels like too hot or or a little scary to write about. And I'll bury a short reference to it somewhere to the mid to the end of what I'm filing. Um, and a good editor will find that be like, no, move that to the beginning. Um, so the way that that happened the, the most in this book was I had asked, I had a bunch of people read individual chapters because there's so many different things I write about. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a bunch of different people reading chapters kind of for expertise review um, to give me some insight about what they thought about the subject matter. And I'd given my second chapter to Greg Gonzalez, who's an epidemiologist and ACT UP alum, really wanting his insight on act up history and some epidemiological questions. Um, but he found like two paragraphs where I wrote about this friend of mine, Olivier. I was like, this seems like you're putting a lot of heart in it here. Why is this at the end? I really think the chapter should be about this person. And Olivier was a, a friend of mine, a, a person I had kind of a heart love connection with only also saw a few times in the years we knew each other, but corresponded for about seven years. And I, I knew Greg was right. So I, I, I went back and rewrote that chapter um, really framing it around this person, which also meant I had to show a lot about how much I love this person who was now deceased mm. and how and why we, HIV had kind of intervened in the way that we related to one another. And the hardest thing about that was I had, um, he ended up, he, he died in 2014. Um, and the hardest thing about that was that I had like six, seven years of Facebook messages with him. So I actually went back and read all of them and quoted from them and used them as an archive. And I felt like that was a, it was a hard thing for me to do. I also felt like I had to put a lot of myself in there too. So it wasn't unfairly just on, you know, on this one person to make myself vulnerable. But it was a chance for me to put into practice something that I teach kind of intellectually, which is to use queer methods and to look for archives that you don't find in other places. And oftentimes when we're writing about people who had HIV or who lived with lives or deaths that were stigmatized or that were marginalized in some way, we're not always looking at traditional archives. We have to look in kind of queer spaces and unusual spaces. Um, so this was an opportunity for me to practice what I preach and to utilize that myself. Um, and that ended up you know, bringing a lot more of myself into it. Um, the other thing that was fairly obvious that I was going to write about once it happened, but I certainly didn't predict it, and I was very heartbroken about it, was that 
one of my closest editors who'd mentored me, Ward Harkavy at The Village Voice, died of COVID about maybe a month or two after I'd signed the book contract. And he was um, he was a really wonderful guy, very funny, uh, an old-school alt-weekly editor, uh, and actually had edited my first story where I ever wrote about AIDS in, in some way. Um, he wasn't gay, but I think he was uh, in, a, in a David Sedaris or an anti-David Sedaris way. Uh, I would say, like, there was a lot of queerness to his life. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, had been a member of the disability community, he had a stutter. He was single for most of his life. Um, he had pretty non-normative politics. He had been very close to lots of queer people, uh, gay men who, who died of AIDS. And so I felt kind of a responsibility to him. And, and he didn't have close family, so I was one of a few people who ended up kind of settling his affairs and taking care of his estate, planning his memorial service. Um, and so I ended up writing a lot about that process and how much I had loved him. And and so that was a chance for me to to practice some of the craft things that he had taught me. Um, but also to share with people uh, like what this loss was like in a way that many readers have written to me that they appreciated because they had some similar experiences and felt and appreciated feeling validated in yeah. um, what they'd gone through, again, in ways that were often encouraged like just to move past and sort of say, like, that happened a couple years ago, move on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have very similar experiences. My wife's uncle died during the first year of COVID, and I mean— we couldn't go see him when he was, I mean, he was very sick for a long time, a stroke, you know, everything, but we couldn't go see him when we knew that the end was coming close. We could have, we had one zoom call with him, you know, it's, it's yeah. I mean, one thing you're bringing up here that I think is really important is that craft considerations and who we are and our values, they're not some separate thing. They they completely (laughs) overlap, right? It's not like craft is just this, um, left brain thing that exists in some, I don't know, platonic realm. And you're like, ah, the craft is speaking to me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also about who you are and, and what kind of values you have intellectually or, you know, what matters to you actually starts to dictate how you create the work that you create. It seems to me. But now I'm going to ask a question that's much less personal <laughs> than that. I just want to make sure that, you know, our, our listeners hear that, which is just I want to talk a bit about how the structure and shape of the book came along, because you have these different lenses you're looking at that, of course, all interrelate. But you still did. Did you sort of figure out these are the 12 things I want to talk about? Okay, that's 12 chapters. What goes in the chapter? I'm going to outline it. Or or were you kind of free writing to find your way into it? You know, how did uh, the, the shape of it come about? It happened in like a few different stages. So I had um, I wrote about this case of Michael Johnson, who got prosecuted for HIV, initially got sentenced to 30 years in prison um, and was... He, he was charged, he sort of like, yes. uh, was charged with intentionally, I'm putting this in heavy quotes yeah. because this is not a video podcast, intentionally infecting people with HIV or not disclosing his status yes. to his sexual yes. recklessly, was, recklessly. Was, was the legal term. Recklessly, was, yeah, recklessly, recklessly, yes. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of the media made it sound like it was intentional. Nothing was intentional in, in this whole story, I think, from any actor's and so he was charged with, you know, with recklessly transmitting or exposing other people to HIV. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. It was kind of every disaster of Black America in one story. And then eventually, um, in part because of my reporting and, and a lot of work the activists did, he ended up getting released about 25 years early. And he still spent most of his 20s in, in jail, but um, but at least he was not in his almost 60 years old when he when he right. got out. And so that story in itself was a real prism for me. And um, one of my aha moments that I write about in the book that helped me start seeing it in terms of viruses is that story happened right outside of St. Louis in St. Charles County. And then six months later, I got sent to go cover the Ferguson uprising after Mm -hmm. Michael Brown had been killed. And when I asked my HIV prevention colleagues that I had worked with on the first story, what I should look for in Ferguson, they told me they had seen, they had just been in that Canfield Green apartment complex because there were new diagnoses of HIV there and that Ferguson had this higher rate of HIV and AIDS. And so I started seeing the ways that these were connected. And for a long time, I was trying to think like, is the story about these two young men named Michael, Michael Johnson and Michael Brown? In some ways, it was hard because I have so much more familiarity with Michael Johnson. I've you know, known him and interviewed him now for eight years. Of course, he's still alive. His life gets to have a next act, which has been really beautiful and, and wonderful to see. And so I didn't know if that was the right way to write about that in terms of, of Michael Brown. Um, but I worked with a version of, of thinking of it in that way for a while. And then when COVID came, I realized um, that I was going to be writing about HIV and COVID together. 
And I started to more seriously think about how to write about Zach Kostopoulos, this person in Greece who had um, was killed by police, but had been HIV positive and a very out HIV uh, positive activist and queer activist and also working with migrant communities. And then the first person in my outer social circle to die of COVID was Lorena Borjas, who was a she was called the mother of the trans Latinx community here in New York City uh, in Queens and was also died of COVID, HIV positive, had dealt with police violence her whole life, was an immigrant, had been in and out of uh, ICE custody or immigration custody. And so kind of as I was writing this proposal and realized I'm going to be comparing these two pandemics, I started seeing like there are these common themes that I'm seeing between them, ableism, capitalism, you know, transphobia, um, how people have different access to prophylaxis or protection in different ways that creates very different risk. And so I started seeing kind of like eight and then 10, eventually 12. I think my publisher was getting a little concerned when I got up to 12. But I started seeing like these are sort of the vectors through which these things happen. And I can kind of write about themes uh, and people on each one. The hardest craft thing that I think ended up working was how to deal with the story of Michael Johnson, because that was the one that was the biggest, the, the one I was closest to and also kind of the, the biggest guiding me. And so the way I ended up laying out the book, th this I think was after we had um, sold the book to Celadon and Macmillan, and I was starting to work with uh, Jamie Rabe and, and Cecily Van Buren Friedman, my, my wonderful editor. And so what I ultimately thought about was taking Michael's story and, and breaking it into four of those vectors, mm -hmm. um, racism, laying out how he was arrested, the law, the way that law produces a viral underclass in the example of the story of his trial, unequal prophylaxis, uh, when he was incarcerated was when I found out and the CDC announced that one in every two black gay men were projected to become HIV positive in our lifetime. And then the final chapter I called The Myth of White Immunity, uh, around Michael, where he gets out of prison, but I reflect on how most of his accusers were white and that their limits to, to assuming whiteness protects people entirely, which of course it does not. And so craft-wise, we decided to like have each of those, have Michael's story be one that we came back to and mm -hmm. came back to and came back to, um, starting with uh, you know his trial and kind of how I started thinking about these things. And then having, this was my editor's, Cecily's very good call, having the penultimate chapter be this kind of happy story of him getting out of prison and seeing that the person we've been following throughout is getting a new lease on life. Um, but then reminding people in the final chapter, which is uh, called um, Compound Loss, where I talk about the ways that collective punishment happens to communities when they lose one of their leaders. There, I come back to the story of Lorena Borjas, who died, and Zach Kostopoulos, who died, and write about, actually, My Michael's story, as glad as I'm, I, I was to have a role in it and as happy as I am to see him out in the world, is unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, for every person who gets out of prison, there's still a couple million who are still in prison. Um, and so, craft-wise, we decided to come back to Lorena and to write about her funeral and sort of what it meant not just for the end of her life and the people close to her, but the cascading effect that had in her community. If you have someone like Lorena who spends their time handing out sterile syringes and condoms they're doing and helping people feel good about themselves. You know, they're, they're doing real work in the community that is both psychologically, but also very physically stopping viral transmission. Yeah. You know, anytime they get someone to use a sterile syringe or a condom, same thing with Zach Kostopoulos. And so when they die, that's just allowing more viruses to move through the community. Because I could see even, even though these communities are very strong, they take a big hit when they lose a leader like that. Right. Um, I'm just going to ask like uh, some really basic questions right now. Do do you draft by hand first? Do you draft in a computer first? What programs do you yeah, use? Yeah, I know? love these kinds of questions. Oh, good, yeah, good, no, good. No, I think this is so. Like writing is a very physical thing, right? Yeah, no, because yeah. like when I was starting with my book, because I was trying to discover the voice, I I had very elaborate outlines actually on on this iPad, uh, but then I hand wrote until I figured out what it was supposed mm. to sound like, and then I started typing it up or whatever. But so like, what yeah. what was your process like of actually drafting it? Yeah. So I'm not like a, um, I don't write out by hand. Sometimes I remember hearing Ira Glass in one of these New York magazine or like, what do you, like, how do you organize yeah. your life? I, and I remember hearing him say, no matter the size of the project, it doesn't <laughs> matter what it is, you always have like a handwritten one page outline. So that's something I will do. Hmm. Like when I'm writing a chapter, I'll, I would have that sort of for each chapter, sort of like an outline by hand of the chapter, but I don't draft sentences by hand usually. I've also learned that if I'm 
transcribing an interview. When I was younger, I did them all myself. Now I can pay somebody to do it. But still what I'll do is, even if it's me conducting the interview and I have paid someone else to transcribe it, I then print out the transcript, play it, and read along with it at the time. Mm. And then I just highlight what I think I might want to use. And that really helps me. I, I worked for the StoryCorps project for a mm-hmm. year. And learning to be an audio editor really, you know, made me understand how to, like, listen for the phrase that things are going to turn on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has sort of freed my brain and the hack that I've uh, that I've learned, and not having to just write that down quickly, but actually, like, look and read at the same time as I'm listening to it or as I'm playing it. Um, and so I would play an interview with Alice Wong, and then I would listen to and highlight the lines I think I'm going to use and then put those in a document. And then sometimes, like, literally just take those quotes and start writing around them or, like, sort of thinking, like, if ordering those quotes around, like, what's the story that's told in this person's quotes? And it could be 10, it could be three, but sort of ordering those out and then kind of writing the scene around those, mm-hmm. letting the quotes first tell the story and then writing in around it. Mm. Um, so that's a hack that that I've used. I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna uh, listen to the. I, I I'll, I'll get over my own disgust at hearing my questions and yeah. I'll listen to the <laughs> interview while I uh, read the transcript. I love that. Um, one and one other thing I'll add to that that might be useful for your students that I found worked really well because I try to bring my students into whatever whatever I'm working on and I particularly with with my editor's permission. Um, but when I'm being edited, I will often share the draft of that with my students so oh, they wow. can see the process of me being edited. The 2,000 edits, I think, that were in this manuscript. Um, so my students can see me being edited as I edit them. But one of the the most wonderful things about, um, the, I won't say it's a good thing about the pandemic, but I ended up doing a lot of interviews remotely and mm-hmm. in ways that weren't in person, so they were video recorded on Zoom. And I tried doing something where I would give my students the raw interview I had done in a story and having them write an exercise about it without reading what I'd written. And then after they'd all written it, then I would give them my chapter in progress. Mm. And then we would all talk about what choices we made. It was really interesting to see how how often we would. uh, And again, I would like ask my sources permission to. uh, And it would be fascinating to see like how often we had chosen the same lines or, you know, sometimes where we hadn't and and why we made the different decisions. So, yeah, those are some of the things that affected me. The thing that affected me most in writing this book, though, I I must say, going forward was reading the audio book, which was more disgusting than listening to your own voice. After the fact, having to right. listen to it live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you have to do the corrections, right? They send you that yes. thing because I did my own audiobook too. And you're like, and then, and you have to say the couple sentences before and then re say the thing because you mispronounce the name or what. It's, it's maddening. So that effect, I'm like, I think having done that, I will now write much shorter sentences. That was the, my oh. biggest critique reading it aloud was who wrote these long ass mm. sentences and why did they put so many words in Greek, Spanish, uh, Chinese, <laughs> Korean, uh, and medical language. <laughs> I had to have a friend who speaks Russian uh, say all the Russian words into a recording for me so that I could learn them because I had only ever read them. I had no, and it turns out I had been mispronounced. Other than Chekhov and Stanislavski, I had mispronounced everyone. In my bed. <laughs> uh, um, and on that note, uh, Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's been great to talk to you about your process. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Isaac, that was really fascinating. Stephen is legit a great talker. And if I can just insert a quick cross-promo here, listeners who are now jonesing for more Stephen Thresher should check out the August episode of Slate's Outward podcast. That episode was called What Viruses Can Teach Us About Our Profoundly Unequal World. His conversation with the host was really fascinating and lovely. But to get to your conversation... I swear I was kind of going through a killing me softly feeling during that interview at various points because I'm working through some of the very questions you talked about with Stephen. For example, about how to credit sources and influences when writing a nonfiction book. My tendency is to want to do a lot of referencing about where the ideas are coming from, but I know all too well that that can get in the way of readability and literary style. And it's also one of the things that differs between journalism and book writing. You can't usually footnote in journalism and you can't hotlink in a book. And so I'm curious, what did you learn about managing citation in the text as you wrote The Method? 
Well, I decided very early on that a feeling of immediacy in the story was absolutely necessary, particularly when we're in Russia and we're talking about somewhat <laughs> abstruse acting theory. You know, like yeah. it's a lot for people to take in. And I wanted them to be really swept up in the story. And that requires a kind of you are there feeling. And yeah. so early on, one of the first lunches I had with my editor, once I started working on it, I said, you know, I think one of the rules of this book is that I'm not going to use secondary sources directly. I'm not going to quote secondary mm -hmm. sources. And he agreed with that. So it was really important to me that the book then have a really robust end note section and that everything yeah. be really well documented. I, you know, I am terrified of inadvertently plagiarizing something yeah. as I think yeah. everyone who does yes. a big nonfiction project is scared of it. Um, yeah. And one of the things I asked my fact checker to look out for was that, and we changed phrasing. Um, I caught one little thing between the galley and the finished text that I changed. You know, it's like, this is something yeah. I care about really deep. Deeply. Yeah. When people use my work without credit, I get annoyed by it. So, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to do that to other people. Yeah. And I think the way Stephen is doing it in his book is absolutely aesthetically the right decision for that one. And the way that I did it in mine is aesthetically right for the method. But yeah. whew, boy, did that make the end notes process a beast. So <laughs> the big advice I have is this. Do the end notes as you go. Every time you finish a draft of a chapter or maybe even a major section of a chapter, just pour yourself a cup of coffee <laughs> or a glass of red wine and take care of the notes for it. You don't want to be in the position of doing the notes after the book is written. And is what you learned when writing your book changed the way you write journalism now that you're back to freelancing? Well, I definitely think I'm much better at research in general. You know, uh -huh. I mean, as you said earlier, the weird annoying thing in journalism is that you, there's no citations. There's no footnotes. There's no endnotes. There's no nothing. Um, you have to keep track of that stuff for fact checkers, but the reader doesn't really get to see it. So how do you fairly credit people without twerking all the sentences of the piece out of whack is a really serious part of the craft of journalism. Yeah. If it appears online, you get some help out of hyperlinks, right? Yeah. Hyperlinks are really your friend. And I really try to do that as much as possible. But it's also hard when, you know, like I have a piece going up later this week where very little of the research exists online. You yeah. know, most of yeah. it's in books. And yeah. so figuring out where do you put the according to and how do you not just, you know, say that over and over again? It's it's really tricky. Yeah. yeah. I was nodding along when Stephen mentioned that when multiple good editors make the same point about something you do in your writing, it's probably something you should think about and maybe even consider changing. What's your equivalent of Stephen's dropping a tiny mention of something that really should be the central framing of the piece toward the very end of a story? That's a really interesting question. And I really want to hear yours, but I'll oh. go first. Um, what I would say is that particularly earlier on in my writing career, you know, I was working very regularly with Dan Coyce right here at Slate. And the thing that he would bring up when he was editing me was that I tended to stop right at the moment when I needed to actually go further. And it's because I was nervous about running roughshod over the word count that he had given me and, and Dan in the many pieces we did together was very good about saying like, I don't really care about the word count limit, hand me a big thing and let's carve the best version of it out of that so yeah. that we could see all the possibilities. And so yeah. uh, to give one example, the very first big thing I wrote for him that the, um, is Hamlet fat piece. I ended on something that was sort of like, well, clearly there are interesting implications to Hamlet always being played by skinny actors, even though the character is described as fat in the play. And he was like, well, what what are the implications? You have to tell us what the implications are. And I was like, oh, but I'm at, I'm at 1,500 words already. And so oh, the, the ending of the piece as it exists now is actually what grew out of that note. Ah, uh, that's amazing. Mine, I think... Yeah, confess your bad habits, yes, June. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've got so many, but this is one that it will sound when I begin to share it, oh, well, that's just a style thing. But I think it actually reveals something deeper. So I just put so much of the text in parentheses. Um, a piece that I wrote relatively recently for Slate, um, the editor, of, who of course is a friend, wrote back and said, um, 
I don't know if you've noticed here, but every paragraph ends with a parenthesis and like that just seems weird. And yeah, that's just style. But actually, I think it reveals something about I don't know exactly what, you know, of am I not really committing to this idea? I'm just trying to pass it off as I don't really want to develop this. This is I'm just saying, you know, just by the way, <laughs> BT dubs. So I think that that's something that I do that uh, it, it's just it's actually about not being willing to take some ideas seriously. I don't know, but uh, that that's one of the things that I repeatedly get pointed out. You know, what's funny about that, June, is that I think the thing both of our ticks have in common is that we're like, nervous about putting our like real feelings about something out there and so we need a good editor or at least needed earlier in our writing career a good editor to kind of like push us off the diving board and into the pool isaac is a non-swimmer that analogy scares me a little bit but i'm gonna let that go <laughs> the year that Stephen spent facilitating interviews for the story core project clearly had a big influence on his journalistic style. Um, we do a very specific kind of interview here on Working. Certainly for me, it's pretty different from the kind of conversation that I have with a source. This is a word that I really don't like, but it's at least better than informant. But, you know, when I'm trying <laughs> to get information and hopefully a few short pithy quotes that will express their perspective and personality beautifully... What advice would you share with listeners about conducting information gathering interviews? First of all, the extent to which an interview goes well or doesn't go well is less in your control than you think. <laughs> you know, it's really about the other person. And if they don't want to talk to you, yeah. you're not going to be able to get what you want out of them. Or if they're really a combative person, you know, it's going to be a combative interview. And that, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. It's not an indictment of you. You know, yeah. Yeah. that said, a lot of it is about the affect and attitude on your part as the interviewer. You have to be really present in the room with them or the phone with them or the Zoom or whatever. You have to give your focus. You have to make it clear that you're really listening to them. You have to be warm. You have to be inviting, you know, and you have to prepare. Now, I actually think in the early days of interviewing, I got really caught up in my prep mm. and it would be hard for me to kind of improvise off of it. Yeah. But actually, you know, I do as much prep now as I used to. It's not that mm -hmm, I do less mm -hmm. prep. It's mm -hmm. that the whole point of preparing is that you have kind of terra firma that yeah. you can then depart from and improvise off of. And, and you know, uh, if someone says something interesting, you know, follow that trail or whatever, right? Yeah. I yeah. also think that in your manner and in the early questions you ask – you do have to demonstrate that you can be trusted and that you've done your homework and you know yeah. what the fuck you're talking about, yeah. you yeah. know, or if you don't, if it's very early in the story and they're, you know, the first person you're talking to about it, you go, you're actually the first person I'm talking to about this. And so I may ask some kind of basic questions and I'm sorry about that, but, and then usually once you admit to that, they're like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's cool. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate.com site. To learn more, just go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Stephen Thrasher and to the producer who cures all our ills, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, who will be talking about the work she did adapting her novel Fleischman is in Trouble into an FX Hulu TV series. Until then, get back to work. Hey, Slate Plus members, Isaac Butler here. Thank you so much for everything uh, you do to support us right here on Working. We have a little extra time with uh, Stephen and uh, hope you enjoy it. So one thing I was struck by in the book is that you mentioned being in grad school in your late 30s and early 40s. I went to graduate school to kind of change careers in my early 30s. And by the time I graduated, you know, everyone else in my program was 25 or something. Yeah. And I felt <laughs> like Don Knotts, you know, <laughs> just like in Three's Company or whatever, a show that they had never heard of. Uh, and so... Um,
you know, a thing that my students, I talk to students quite a bit and, and, and maybe it's because I teach in an acting program or whatever, but you know, they're really invested in the idea that they have to have shit figured out right yeah. now in part because school's so expensive, yeah. but, um, I've been through a bunch of different careers. You're someone who sort of has found yourself and, and changed things. I just wanted to talk a little bit about your process of figuring out what you wanted to do and, and how it's okay for that to take a while or, you know, you can try a bunch of different things. So, so, you know, can you just talk a little bit about your career evolution and what made you decide to go back to graduate school and, and what it's been like since you graduated? Yeah, sure. So, and I have the same feeling with, with my students. It was 14 years between undergrad and graduate school for me. And I've had lot, I've done lots of different things for right. money. And, and, and undergrad was screenwriting yeah. and grad school is American studies and you teach and you write books and you do journalism and you know, it's, there's just a lot that you've done. So yeah. And, and yeah, for any of your students or other young people, you have time to f- figure things out. Uh, I went to, yeah, I went to Tish as an undergraduate at NYU. Um, That's where I teach and studied. Are you in the, which studio? I'm in drama? theater studies. So, okay. so all the all the studio kids have to take liberal arts yeah. classes, and so I teach yeah. them the classes they don't want to take. No, so I'm it was dramatic writing <laughs> and film production. But I went with you know I, I was with a lot of um, uh, drama students as an undergraduate, uh, and my first job in college or my my first professional job was I worked at SNL. I was a, a intern at Saturday Night Live and on the Weekend Update desk my last year of college, and then I was a writer's assistant my first year. And it, I feel so old when I talk about this because there was only one internet connection in the office. Um, there was no YouTube. So like one of the things I had to do was actually make reels for right. for the actors. Was and, Kevin Nealon on the desk at that point? No, or was no. It, uh, Colin Quinn. Colin Quinn. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I worked in film production for years in very, very precarious conditions. I mean, I worked for the Todd Solons on on the middle of happiness, post-production happiness, and then worked in the entirety of storytelling. I worked on the film The Laramie Project. Um, and those were, like, really good experiences. Particularly in The Laramie Project, I learned a lot about interviewing because that film is based on the tectonic theater play that itself is based on 120 uh, interviews that they did to to create this oral history of of Laramie and to build something out of it, creative out of it. Um, during those years, I finished paying off my student loans, and I think I was twenty seven, or no, it was twenty seven or twenty eight. And I took my mother, who was uh, my last of my three parents, my my stepmother, my dad, and my dad and my birth mother had died in the past couple of years, and my stepmother, who was called my mom, was very close to her. I took her to the StoryCorps booth, um, and I did not know she was going to pass away six months later. Mm. But I interviewed her with all the kind of questions one might ask. Um, you know, if they knew their parent was going to pass, I didn't know that. I happened to go on a day where they were training people. They don't do it this way anymore, but they used to hire people for a year at a time to be facilitators to to facilitate people's interviews, um, to organize them for the Library of Congress, and to pick ones and edit some for the radio. Um, and I happened to go where they were training people, and they'd said. Oh, you seem like you did a really good job at this. You might think about applying to this program next year. I didn't really give it much thought. Um, But then after my mom passed away, I felt like, and I listened to the interview again, I thought I really have an insight to how meaningful this is. It's the most valuable thing I have of her. And I think it could help other people have those kind of conversations and help facilitate them. Um, And so I ended up getting the job and spending a year working for StoryCorps. And I interviewed 500 people in 26 different states. (laughs) I learned how to do something that, as I always tell my students, it's completely economically unhelpful, um, but I think it informs my stories where it's very hard for me to interview anyone for less than an hour. Even if I just need some simple information, I usually interview people for an hour. Yeah. And then often, like, the story I end up writing is not about the question I ask them, but, you know, something else that they say during that time. Um, but I really feel like I, I grew as, as an interviewer. Um, it was such a wonderful opportunity to meet different kinds of people that I wasn't seeking out. You know, this project w- was setting it up. And I started writing for the, the StoryCorps blog, which blogging was a new thing. Blogging's how I became a writer, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I also, like, we would go into these local towns, and the local newspapers always write about us. But I sometimes, at, that I would ask sometimes, can I write something for the local mm-hmm. paper? And so I decided during that year, the pay was not good. But our, while we were on the road, everything was paid for. And so I decided, like, I'm just going to save my money for this. And then when I get back to New York, I'm going to spend a year only writing or only doing creative things under my name. I'd, like, worked as an assistant for all these sort of high-profile writers. I was like, sink or swim, starve or not, I'm going to just spend a year. So that's what I did. Um, and I came back to the city and and started writing for Gay Press for about six months. Eventually, I ended up at The Village Voice. Um, oh, and wow. I loved the, Yeah, and I loved The Village Voice. I was a feature. I wrote, like, features once a month. A lot of the techniques that I learned 
working for uh, working on the story project and from Tectonic and also working for the Laramie Project and learned from the Tectonic Theater Company and also working for the StoryCorps project, I learned, I used a lot of those techniques in writing feature stories. I would write long, deeply reported pieces, profiles, uh, but I also had to blog uh, new stuff. And so I was writing about unfolding stuff around same-sex marriage and military service and also eventually Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. um, and, and the BLM movement. And a week after I won my biggest award, I got laid off. Um, uh, and I found out on Twitter. <laughs> Great. Um, and a, a bunch of us got laid off, and we all found out. We, first, our emails weren't working, and we're like, what's going on? And then we saw on Twitter that we'd been laid off. And I had never heard at that until that point in my life, I had never heard of such a thing as paid for graduate school. I didn't know mm -hmm. that you could, if you went to, if you become a PhD student in a funded program, you don't pay, they pay you. Right. Um, and so I saw a lot of journalists I knew moving into PR jobs or comms jobs, which I had no interest, or trying to go back and forth between those, which I, I was not interested in doing. But I also thought it's gonna, it's really unrealistic that I'm going to be able to just keep being a writer in this way for the next 30 years, <laughs> you know, consistently. And so that's when I very seriously started thinking about doing a PhD. Initially, I thought of maybe doing it in sociology, but I knew in some ways that I wanted to build on the knowledge I had built around, particularly around LGBT people and life, what it was like before marriage equality. And I thought maybe I might want to do something after marriage equality finally became a thing. But I understood there were some limits to what marriage covered, and there were lots of things that didn't cover and I had started around the same time writing about AIDS and saw, like, writing about AIDS brings into purview many of the things that I right. care about. So I applied to this PhD program, a bunch of PhD programs, ended up going to um, the American Studies program back at NYU, but a very different part of the university, um, thinking that I would kind of, that sociology might be something I was studying, but I actually ended up studying under a medical anthropologist and doing a lot of public health work and kind of building on the journalism done around HIV and AIDS mm. and this case I just started covering about Michael Johnson and understanding kind of the relationship between law and society and using medical anthropology to think about and critical race theory to think about that. Um, coincidentally and, and, or maybe ironically, as soon as I was trying not to do so much journalism work is when I got my best journalism job, which was writing <laughs> for the guardian um, so that went on all through grad school, and then I was very lucky to um, find kind of the perfect job to apply to before I'd even finished, and I was invited to apply for what what's called the Daniel Renberg Chair at Northwestern. It was the, it's the first ever journalism professorship created to focus on LGBTQ research, mm. and so I got hired there and deferred for a year and had a job waiting for me when I finished grad school, which was great. And then I nominally moved to Chicago after grad school um, and got all of 10 weeks to teach uh, before the COVID-19 right. pandemic. Um, so since, you know, I'm, I'm there, grads, funded programs are very hard to get into. Grad school is hard work, but I think that it is, it can be a really good thing for journalists, particularly when you like go into a field that aligns with the things you're already interested in mm -hmm. and, and all kinds of, you know, there, there are fields that you go into, they're very specialized, but most of the social science, many of the humanities, certainly American studies programs, allow you to just be curious people and, right. and do research, which I love. And, and that's been really great. And what I've tried to do in this position is my because my home tenure line, my home department is journalism. I can do a lot of journalism. I also have an appointment in the medical school uh, in a research institute called the Institute for Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Wellbeing. Mm -hmm. um, and between these two institutes, I, I teach similar things, but sometimes from the opposite perspective. So I teach journalism students a lot about civil rights history and how to write about LGBT communities and communities of color and teach them, of course, about viruses and public health. Um, but I've also started teaching medical students um, about some of the same things, but also how to write about your research. Right. Um, to a different to broad audiences and um, and I've been surprisingly pleased and it's increased even more so since my book has come out to see that many medical schools and medical institutions are very interested in social science and humanities um, but the other thing I haven't got to do yet and is still kind of my dream is I want to first have a like weekend or three-day symposium bringing together 
uh, queer and trans journalists, social scientists, hard scientists, MDs, medical students, and to bring them together and sort of workshop, like, what has helped you best listen to and understand LGBTQ people, and to see what is it that... People across disciplines don't talk that much and sort of see, like, what has worked for journalism students, what's worked for med students, you know, what things have social scientists learned who've, who've been dealing with this in a lot of ways longer than than the other groups. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the first part, you know, very briefly about my balls. I'd had um, <laughs> I'd had a, a testicular lump that I had that I got checked out and um, and had a really off-putting experience with the sonogram person who uh, the receptionist who made fun of my age and said, you know, oh, I didn't think you could, you know, you're referred by a college, uh, you know, college student health center. I didn't expect someone your age to come in. And that really made me think about the ways that if a trans person is, you know, presenting, quote unquote, not the way someone's expecting in such a situation, they might, they might leave, you know, Mm -hmm. they might feel too uncomfortable. Um, And of course, when I've asked trans people about that, they say, yes, this happens all the time that, you know, they they try to get help. uh, And then you end up just passively not seeking help. Um, and so, yeah, I still have a dream of of having kind of a workshop between the med school and the journalism school and some other departments to start workshopping around this and then to try to develop better listening and interviewing techniques, um, which I don't know if you've seen this in your work, but I've certainly found the more I learn about how different communities communicate and what I can learn from them, it doesn't just help with that community. Like, it opens yeah. up to me, like, all other kinds of ways. How do we make people feel more comfortable uh, and safe and forthcoming in the way that we communicate with them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's kind of what I've been up to since grad school and writing this book. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, Stephen, thank you again for uh, joining us here and, and sharing so much about yourself and your work. We just really appreciate it. Thank you, Isaac. And thank you, Slate Plus listeners. We'll uh, check you next time right here on Working.